we are going to need to get on pump soon or we may have an arrest. This is Alice, and you're listening to Pete's Crit. This week, instead of putting out a new episode, we're going to revisit the uncut interview of one of my all-time favorite episodes, Vivi Ecmo in the PICU Population with Dr. Jenna Miller. Dr. Miller is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri Kansas City School of Medicine. She did her medical school and residency in Kansas City, went to Texas Children's for Critical Care Fellowship, and then came back as an attending. She's the director of the Pediatric ECMO Program and the Pediatric Critical Care Fellowship Program at Children's Mercy Kansas City, and she was an absolute delight to interview. Please enjoy. Welcome back to PedScript. We are so excited to be here with Dr. Jenna Miller to talk about this very important topic, VV ECMO. So to get us started, Jenna, Please tell us a little bit about yourself and feel free to include something you enjoy outside of medicine. Thanks, Zach and Alice, for having us. We're really excited to talk about our love of ECMO and how we manage our patients here at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. I trained in residency and medical school in Kansas City. Then I went to Texas Children's and then I came back to Kansas City because I really love the city and the hospital and my family's here. Outside of medicine, I really enjoyed going to travel everywhere. So internationally, domestically. I really enjoy seeing other parts of the country, parts of the world, how people live, how people go about their day-to-day lives. And I think when I come back to the States and back to Kansas City, that helps me be really a better person and a better physician because I have seen a wider variety of how people, you know, experience life. So I really enjoy that. Plus the beach is, you know, real nice. So that is fun for me. Oh, definitely. That sounds like the ultimate inspirational hobby. How did you become interested in ECMO specifically? I was thinking about this question and I thought it was a really great question. I thought back and I thought, well, the first sign was that I wasn't intimidated by it, I think, early in my training. And that kind of evolved slowly over my fellowship and early faculty life. And I had a great ECMO mentor here when I was early faculty and and I enjoyed watching the program evolve where we were extubating patients and using new equipment and new technology. And then I say it was probably cemented by a patient who I'll talk a little bit about later in my kind of middle faculty year so far, where we had two fairly back-to-back patients that have to date really been our longest run patients at 120 and 190 days. And so just really watching the investment, the thought process, and the mental gymnastics really that go into maintaining a patient on circuit for that long and thinking about how to move them towards decannulation, I think really cemented my interest in ECMO and in that population. Jenna, do you have any resources or ideas or networking strategies for trainees who may want to become more involved in this area? I think over time I have learned these things by my own experience, but now what I advise my trainees who are interested in ECMO or any really extracorporeal support to do is most institutions will have some sort of executive committee or steering committee for that support. And so usually they will let trainees sit on on those committee meetings and just observe and hear what are the issues? How do we implement strategies? How do we think into the future for this program? And I think that's really valuable for trainees. So just asking if that's available at your institution, if you're able to sit in would be something I'd recommend. 
And then the two biggest ECMO meetings really are ELSO in the fall and something we call Keystone, which is in Keystone, Colorado, which is why we call it that. But both meetings, I think, are great for trainees. And I personally like them because they're smaller meetings. So you actually can kind of see the same people over and over again. And as you mentioned, network and kind of meet the grandfathers and the grandmothers and the current leaders of ECMO in person, which I think is really amazing. And when you think about the history of ECMO, it's really since the 1970s when Dr. Bartlett did the first run and he's at these meetings. And so it's just very inspirational, I think, to kind of see the whole history of ECMO all in one place. And so those are kind of the two biggest meetings that I would suggest people go to or, you know, think about taking a case report to or anything else that their mentors might be working on. Oh, wow. That does sound like an incredible opportunity. So let's start out with a case. It is a busy day in the PICU and NICU in Kansas City. You have two patients that have you concerned. Your first is a newborn girl admitted with respiratory failure. She was born at 41 weeks gestation through meconium-stained fluids. She was intubated in the delivery room and subsequently transferred to your unit the following day due to worsening hypoxemia despite high ventilator pressures, FiO2, and the initiation of inhaled nitric oxide. Your second patient is a 16-year-old male with hypoxemic respiratory failure due to pneumonia and ARDS. He was intubated two days ago, and despite lung protective ventilation and multiple adjunctive strategies, he has worsening hypoxemic respiratory failure. We are worried that both of them require VV ECMO. Thankfully, you are on service. (laughs) Since things aren't looking great for either patient, sort of at both ends of the age spectrum, let's review what exactly is VV ECMO. So VV ECMO stands for veno-venous extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, and it's a lung bypass system specifically, which is going to drain blood from a vein and return the blood back to a vein. So this is different from VA, which is veno-arterial ECMO, and is a different topic that we won't go much into today. Commonly, this type of ECMO is done through a right internal jugular vein, That mode of ECMO requires the patient to have intact or at least adequate cardiac function because we are not replacing the function of the heart in this type of ECMO. So that's really important delineator about deciding who should get this type of ECMO versus who should get VA ECMO. The circuit itself, once we connect to the pump and the circuit is similar in that there's a pump and an oxygenator that's in series with the patient. Nice. So... How do you really know when to initiate something like VV ECMO? Where do you draw the line in a patient who has progressive respiratory failure? It is absolutely patient dependent and is a bit variable depending upon the cause of respiratory failure. Generally speaking, as I mentioned before, you have to have somebody who has intact cardiac function and indications of respiratory failure. So that is where you're going to start thinking about ECMO and specifically VV ECMO. The causes of respiratory failure are vast and can be infectious ARDS, ARDS secondary to other causes such as sepsis or trauma, inhalational injuries, or even idiopathic where we don't know exactly what's going on. I'm going to refer a lot to the ECMO Red Book. This is commonly referred to as the ECMO Bible in many ECMO circles, and it is the most current up-to-date data from the ELSO registry. ELSO is something that many large centers, both adult and pediatrics, internationally contribute data to so that we have a running count of really what's going on in real time of ECMO around the world. Oh, wow. That book itself is really well annotated and referenced, so if you have specific questions about where something comes from in the literature, it is in the Red Book. 
And I'll also say, as I mentioned, that one of the indications for VV ECMO could be idiopathic. One of my current research projects is looking at ARDS caused by trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, which is commonly known as Bactrim. And so, as I mentioned in my intro, we had a patient who had a 190-day run, and she ended up actually being the first clinically diagnosed and recognized patient in our institution, and was kind of the sentinel patient going forward and defining what actually this disease process looks like. So if you have a patient with unexplained ARDS on ECMO, make sure you've gotten a really thorough drug history. So to your actual question, deciding on timing of cannulation, that can be very clear where you have an acutely deteriorating patient with failure to exchange gas, progressive acidosis, and it's very obvious that, hey, we are going to need to get on pump soon or we may have an arrest. It can also be harder to identify when that time is and a little bit more indolent where you have a slowly declining patient over the course of hours to maybe a day and the decision is less clear. In either case, you have to determine first if the patient is indeed a candidate for extracorporeal support by considering whether you think their acute process is reversible. Historically, that was really like the only question. Is their acute process reversible? But as we've expanded indications for ECMO and decreased the contraindications, we also have to think about a lot of underlying disease processes too in our patients as they've become more and more complex. So with that, I'll say that there are fewer and fewer absolute contraindications. So when you're thinking about ECMO candidacy, think about underlying diagnoses, any absolute contraindications that can be identified, and you can refer to your handy red book to look those up. And then you think about their acute process and whether that's reversible. If you decide that they are a candidate, discussion with your friendly surgical colleagues early is helpful. So you can also ensure that it's technically feasible. There are some patients who have vascular anomalies. Maybe they had previous lines. Maybe they have some other reason that cannulation would be technically challenging or not feasible. And so you want to know that before you start a surgery and trying to get a patient on, especially if it's in a situation of urgency or emergency. So then after that, what is the benefit versus risk of ongoing high ventilator support for that patient and risk of ventilator-induced lung injury for that patient? I take this decision so personally, and so it can be really hard to decide when that exact moment is for those patients that are having a slow decline or maybe inability to get better on really high vent settings. But clear indications might be that you're having progressive hypoxia or hypoxemia while in a high mean airway pressure and a high FiO2. Commonly, that looks like 100% FiO2 on high APRV or oscillator settings. You may have progressive hypercarbia and acidosis with pHs around 7 or less that are concerning when you're on high ventilator settings. And eventually, these things are going to lead to hemodynamic inadequacy developing in response to the acidosis or hypoxemia that you have. Air leak, which consists of either pneumothorax, pneumomediastinum, subcutaneous emphysema, sometimes pneumopericardium, at any time with a severe respiratory failure patient is concerning, and it's really a trigger for me to cannulate when I see that. That indicates that the ventilator settings you're using, which are not adequate for your gas exchange, are already causing damage to the lungs, and so that's usually a hard stop for me to go ahead and just cannulate. Oh, nice. The ultimate goal for these patients is really to get on while they're hemodynamically fairly stable and absolutely to do it before you have any sort of arrest situation from acidosis and hypoxia. And as we don't have a crystal ball, we don't always know when that is. But I think just being mindful of the 
short-term progression of that patient, what your ventilator settings are, and how much tolerance you have for their hypoxia and hypercarbia tells you when the right time will come. Oh, nice. So you've got these pool of patients. I really appreciate the, this is my mental model for the progressive respiratory failure. Once your institutional tripwires are triggered and you've decided to call for ECMO, in this patient population, who would you need to put on VA instead of VV? So generally anyone with overt heart failure, and that can be right or left or both cannot be supported with VV. The other thing is there are some contraindications that are published in the Red Book, and so you want to consider those as well. Poor prognosis from the primary disease, such as anything oncologic or congenital, severe neurologic injury or intracranial hemorrhage, anybody less than two kilos, are things that we want to think about perhaps not putting the patient on ECMO at all. And then, as we mentioned, VV should be avoided anybody that's got obvious heart failure. So we always were taught that VV ECMO is lung bypass. It's not heart and lung bypass. But when I think about my training thus far, almost every patient that we put on VV ECMO has some vasoactive requirement going on. Where do you draw the line? That's a really good question. My answer is it depends. <laughs> How helpful is that? But if you're generally speaking, if you're on a single agent vasoactive support, it may just be that your high mean airway pressure and acidosis is causing that cardiac dysfunction, right? So we have decreased the preload a bit to the RV. We've increased the afterload on the RV with these high vent settings. And the acidosis can cause biventricular contractility issues. So it might just be that we need to get good gas exchange, bring the intrathoracic pressure down, and the heart's going to feel better. A precannulation echo can help you a little bit so that you can see how the RV and the LV is functioning. Are you volume loaded? Are you underloaded? Hopefully there's no pericardial effusions that you come across when you do that echo, but it's really important if you have time, which you don't always, but if you have time to try to grab an echo beforehand to get a sense of that. And then if you think your patient is septic, so obviously our ARDS patients may come with the bonus of having bacteremia and sepsis. And if you think your patient is septic or vasoplegic, that might be another reason that you would not be able to support the patient with just VV. And then if you have multiple inotropic agents, I think that's another clinical indicator that you may need VA. Some options, some institutions may cannulate to VA and then convert to VV when the heart recovers. Some may cannulate VV, monitor and see as they correct the acidosis and as the gas exchange improves, does the heart improve? And if not, then their surgeon is available and ready to convert to VA. This all takes a lot of coordination between you, your ECMO team, and the surgeons about what is feasible at your institution, what people are comfortable with, and what people are willing to do. But those are some approaches. Great. So this is fantastic. Yes. So to move forward with our patients, after you stabilize your neonate on VV ECMO, you're called to the bedside of the 16-year-old with severe ARDS. He's developed a pneumothorax, and he has persistent hypoxemia despite high ventilator pressures and FiO2. You also decide to cannulate him onto VV ECMO. So really taking a step back and thinking about teenagers, children with ARDS, what evidence is there that this patient could benefit from VV ECMO? So there are not really any clinical trials or standard triggers for cannulation in this age group. 
There's some good data that ventilator-induced lung injury is not good for patients. And so when we look at the outcomes for these types of patients in the ELSA database, we look at the non-traumatic pediatric data, and there's a 69% survival. So if we think about the risks of staying on high ventilator settings where we know, such as in this patient, we've already developed an air leak versus the risk of going on to ECMO, the outcomes are favorable both in this type of patient per ELSO and actually are more favorable than other indications in the ELSO database. So I think in this patient, the benefits outweigh the risks of getting on to ECMO support, especially in an institution that has high volume or... Expertise per se? Yeah expertise taking care of VV patients. Yes. To know that it's something that you do often and well is like gives you just a little extra comfort, right? Absolutely. Earlier, we talked about the common indications for neonates to require VV ECMO. What are those common indications that come to mind when you think about causes for severe respiratory failure for adolescents that require VV? The most common things I think about are infectious or traumatic causes of ARDS or respiratory failure. On occasion, we'll have an inhalational injury, which we've had a handful of times. Mm. Increasingly, asthma is becoming a more common indication for VV ECMO, and we've done that several times with really great success. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there can be idiopathic reasons where you're not exactly sure why you're going on, but you had a healthy patient who now has severe respiratory failure and you want to give them a chance and see if you can figure it out. So that's another indication for ECMO sometimes is you're not exactly sure, but it's a bridge to a diagnosis or an attempt to find a diagnosis, which I think in certain patient populations is really important. The classic like, oh, sure, this previously healthy teenager's adenovirus is positive, but we really, we need to broaden it a little bit here, right? Like there's, there's no way that they're on ECMO for that. Absolutely. And it could be that you find a rheumatologic reason or you find, unfortunately, sometimes we do find an oncologic reason. And then, as I mentioned before, sometimes we find a drug-induced reason. So so it's really, I think, valuable in a select populations to be able to do a bridge to diagnosis if there's no diagnosis going on. So say the 16-year-old patient, you decide he or she needs to go on VV ECMO. What kind of conversation do you have with your surgeon and your ECMO technicians about where to cannulate, what size cannulas to use, what's on the table for us today? So most commonly, our pediatric and neonatal patients are going to be cannulated through their right internal jugular vein, and we usually use a dual lumen bicable cannula. Most commonly in recent history, that has been the Avalon. We have not actually had that cannula in small sizes, as John talked about earlier, but we have had it available for our bigger patients and certainly for our adolescents. And so when we talk about the size of cannula that we want to use, we think about the size of our patient. And you have to take into account if your patient is overweight or obese because their vessels are usually not. So you have to think about what is an ideal body weight for this patient and then think about what type of flow you want. I'll talk about flow a little bit later, which can be a bit more necessary to push flows in VA ECMO. But in VV, we often have less need to push the flows up higher. And so we think about generally the age and the flow needs when we're thinking about size of cannula. While single site Bicable cannulas are most common. There is some literature about multi-site VV, and that is possible even in neonates in one paper that was published pretty recently, but it is less common and it is trickier. And so certainly if you have lesser experience with this, it's going to be more of a challenge, especially if the patient needs a longer ECMO run. And here I'll just mention that while we're talking about VV as the 
go to for respiratory failure. If you look at ELSO, 65% of runs are VV. So that means actually a third of respiratory runs are still done via VA cannulation configuration for various reasons. Oh, interesting. Now to what you need to place these cannulas. So some of that is surgeon dependent and institution dependent. However, you're going to need echo guidance for this because these cannulas have termination in the IVC. And so we want to see that the cannula is actually in the IVC. And also we need to see that the reinfusion port is oriented towards the tricuspid valve. And that is critical. So we need to make sure that that highly oxygenated flow of blood is going straight towards the tricuspid valve, right into the right ventricle, through the lungs, and then back to the left side and out into the systemic circulation. So if that jet isn't oriented correctly, then it's going to be pointing up or down or sideways in the right atrium, and the blood is going to mix. And so you're going to have more venous admixture and the patient's going to be more desaturated. So it's really important for that reinfusion port to be oriented correctly. Some institutions will also use fluoro guidance. So we do that. We use fluoroscopy for our placement because that wire has to come down through the IJ, through the right atrium, and down into the IVC. And so in order to try to avoid injuries, we use fluoro. Not everybody uses fluoro, especially for centers that have long history with these types of cannulas, but we do. Um, And so that is used for the placement of the cannula. And then we use echo to make sure that the jet is oriented correctly. So you have a, you'll bring like the full fluoro arm in like it's an ortho procedure into your picky room? So we actually take, in our institution, we actually take the VV Avalon cannula patients to the OR so that they can use the fluoro. So that's a whole process. I mean, obviously, again, we have to do it at the right time so that they're stable enough to get over to the OR. When we do crescents, which we just do by echo guidance, we do those in the room. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. We have brought fluoro into the room for a COVID patient before, so we were able to get that up there, but it doesn't fit in every room. So Mm -hmm. again, if you're in a room where the fluoro can't fit in there, you have to move anyways to get fluoro up there. So um, we will do those patients in the OR. But that is very institution dependent. And whatever the process that your institution develops with the cannulation team is probably the right thing for your institution. That's just how we do it. Oh, thank you. I have a couple quick follow-up questions. So for, I just can't imagine walking down a VV ECMO candidate to the OR. I'm sure you guys have a great system and I want to learn more about that. Do you have like a formal handover to anesthesia and then you just turn the patient loose or is this like everyone walking down together? (laughs) So we have a standard work document that we have for our respiratory therapists because as we discussed, these patients are often on high ventilator settings or an oscillator. Nitric is common, so you have a lot of equipment. So we have a standard work document that helps us determine what type of gas flow and power sources we need in the OR to bring all of these things into the OR. And then as I talk about later, transitioning potentially to a conventional ventilator if I'm not on a conventional ventilator. So we have a lot of equipment that we take back there. So there's standard work that the respiratory therapists follow to ensure that we've got enough equipment, enough power, and enough gas to be able to supply all of those things. As far as anesthesia and the ICU physician, we absolutely do a handoff up front to say these are the things that are going on as far as settings, if there's any inotropes, access, all the important things that the anesthesiologist is going to need to know. But generally speaking, we also will go back to the OR. So if it's in the middle of the night and I'm the only one available, then I may not be back there for the whole case, but I absolutely and our team in general will be back there when we get on to pump. 
so that we can help manage any tweaks that the pump needs and then as well as change the ventilator settings which I'll talk a little bit about later. This sounds like a really a really well organized protocol and I think that your patient I'm sure that your patients are benefiting. You've you've placed to sort of save the tricuspid and and really protect the right heart you're placing under fluoro. Then you're looking at it with an echo. Something that is often underappreciated is the way that your lung expansion can sort of change the geometry of the space. How do you time your images and your confirmation with adjusting from the high vent settings to a more like rest lung vent settings? Mm-hmm. So it depends on which ventilator we're on. So if we're on a conventional ventilator with high pressure control or high APRV settings versus an oscillator, it's slightly different, but the concept is the same. So there is really no data to describe this process that we do. However, technically people do know that as the lungs are very inflated, the intrathoracic pressure is very high, the space in there is bigger. And so the cannula will rest higher. Once the lungs deflate, that intrathoracic space becomes a little smaller and that cannula will drop down. So depending on the size of your patient, Those small changes could be a half a centimeter, a centimeter, one to two centimeters that your lungs inflate or deflate. And that can absolutely change where that reinfusion port is sitting and how the jet is going towards the tricuspid valve. So if your cannula drops down two centimeters, your reinfusion port may be bouncing around the bottom of the right atrium. If your lungs are very inflated, then it may raise up to the top of the right atrium and be bouncing around the top of the right atrium. So it's really important to think about where do I want this cannula to be and how do I want my lungs to be? So generally speaking, we get onto VV, we want to rest the lungs, right? People talk about that all the time. What does rest even mean? But I try to get as close to what I think my rest settings are going to be in the OR or immediately during cannulation. My approach to rest settings is that I have to admit I generally fall into the philosophy of permissive atelectasis on ECMO. And so there's really probably two philosophies. So one is that you do permissive atelectasis, meaning whatever part of the lung has collapsed, you allow it to stay collapsed. And if other parts of the lung want to collapse on low to modest ventilator settings, then you allow that. The other philosophy is that you try to maintain as much of an open lung strategy as possible. But When I talk about my view of rest settings, I fall into that category of believing in permissive atelectasis. You've taken a stand. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have. And all my partners and and friends at work know that. So, you know, it's a good good point of conversation. If we're on very high pressure control or APRV settings, as soon as I hear the specialist say on ECMO, I'm over by the ventilator with the anesthesiologist or the RT and we're turning it down. So I'm going to turn it down very slowly to get to what I'm going to consider rest settings for that patient. And so rest settings are different for every patient, in my opinion. Before I get back there, I usually have an idea of what I think those rest settings should be. And so I hear them say on ECMO and I start turning the vent down towards rest settings so that hopefully during or by the end of the echo, I'm on rest settings. And while the lungs will continue to deflate over that first 6, 12, 24 hours, they hopefully are a little bit closer to where they're going to be ultimately in the OR because as we said, every tiny little centimeter or less than centimeter change may really change the oxygenation status of the patient. Getting as close to where we think that reinfusion port should be in the OR or at the time of cannulation, I think is really valuable for the patient going forward. So if I'm on the oscillator, 
then I will turn the oscillator down to low settings and convert over to the conventional ventilator during the echo if if the patient's tolerating that. Again, for the same reason, we're on high mean airway pressure on the oscillator. And if I can get them over to conventional ventilator on what I hope is to be their rest settings, then that cannula will be closer to where the optimal place is at the time of placement. I love visualizing the cardiopulmonary interactions just right in front of us there yeah. as we're cannulating. I mean, that's a, it's a great example. This might be a good time to just go ahead and flesh out what exactly is rest settings. Because if we, if we our goal is to be really close to that in the OR, Let's go ahead and describe what that is for your practice and and what you try to get to Mm -hmm. in the OR versus in the ICU later. Yes. This is a very, I don't know what the right word to say. It's not emotional. It's not volatile. But (laughs) people have a lot of feelings about what rest settings are. But if we think about the big picture, ECMO is meant to avoid ventilator-induced lung injury. So when we get on flow, we want to turn the vent down. We should be able to use the ECMO circuit to oxygenate the patient well enough and ventilate, meaning sweep the patient down well enough to support the patient's metabolic needs. So we don't need their saturations to be in the 90s or 100. And in fact, if they are upon cannulation, I wonder, did I cannulate too early? Because their lungs are actually contributing here. But it's very common for them to be in the 70s and 80s upon cannulation. And if that's where I'm sitting, I'm pretty happy about it. And so since the circuit is doing the work, I turn the ventilator down. And again, what does that mean? I don't think there are any set long rest settings. But commonly, people talk about the 10-10-10 philosophy. And so have you guys heard of that? Oh, yes. Yes. And so where did that even come from? So I think that came from the CSER trial, which was an adult trial for ECMO and ventilator settings that was kind of a head-to-head comparison and was one of the quintessential ECMO trials that people commonly refer to. And so I think this is where the 10-10-10 philosophy came from. Again, that's an adult, right? We're talking about pediatric patients here. So first of all, we know that maybe it doesn't apply linearly across the spectrum to all our pediatric patients. So if you look in the red book and it talks about what is rest settings, it also admits that There's no set idea of what rest settings should be, but generally speaking, it says we should maintain a PIP or peak inspiratory pressure less than 25, a PEEP anywhere from 5 to 15, so a big range, rate of 10 to 20, and an FiO2 less than 50%. So I think this is at least a starting place to think about what your rest settings are to be somewhere in that range. And so maybe your younger patient has a higher rate and your adolescent patient has a lower rate. I usually use a PEEP between 8 and 10, depending upon the patient and why I'm on. But generally speaking, my personal goals are to eventually evaluate every patient to wake up, extubate, and walk around. So what are the lowest settings I can start with so that I can do that over the next several couple days to weeks? So out of respect to the way that the mean airway pressure changes your cannula position, in the OR, you hear on pump, the cards fellows on their way, you drop to your initial rest settings, understanding that you'll titrate them. I imagine that the RV is going to change significantly between first cannulating to experiencing normoxemia, maybe decreasing your PVR. How do you monitor that over the first couple days? As we talked about, the echo and possibly fluoro are used for placement of the cannula. Over the next coming days, and specifically the very first thing, day one after cannulation, I will always echo to look at where my cannula is. 
The first few days we'll see the most change probably in your inflation and deflation. And then I'll also point out here that the volume status of the patient is going to change the placement of that cannula. And that is frequently in flux those first couple of days as well. So when we talk about inflation and deflation, as I said, we try to get to low vent settings early, but over the course of that first 6 to 12, maybe 24 hours, we're still going to see some deflation. So I will echo first thing in the morning, either the next day or if the cannulation happened at night, just to see where that cannula is sitting and if we've had any change in being higher or lower and where that reinfusion port is oriented. And it's nice to know that as you go through the day, as opposed to finding out later when your patient acutely desaturates that your cannula is malpositioned. So, so I like to do that first thing in the morning and just have an idea of where I'm at day one. I do the same thing day two, day three, day four, just depending upon how much adjustment in our deflation we've had, how much change in volume status, meaning did the patient diurese bunch. And that is also when I'll start to monitor what's going on with the RV. Tell us more about that. The RV is a finicky thing. And I think there's more interest in monitoring the RV through time. And there's actually an RV protection network and they're studying what's going on with the RV. And so I echo that every day. It's under so much strain, right guys? So you've got these lungs, which I commonly refer to as bricks or concrete causing huge afterload to the RV. And then we've got this giant jet of blood flowing into the right atrium and through the RV. And so how is the right side handling all of that strain? And it's really important to monitor that because as we said at the top, cardiac failure and VV ECMO can be incompatible. Mm -hmm. So watching the RV for its health, I think is very important. So it may not be obvious that things are changing with your RV and your right side of your heart right away. But it is helpful to then have serial sequential echoes over those first few days. And if you have a long run over those weeks and really doing it at least weekly, in my opinion, to monitor for change. And sometimes it's not obvious. And so I'll have the cardiologist, pulmonary hypertension specialist specifically go back and put those in series and look at the first echo where we are now and see if we can see any change that's more obvious over that course of time. Because sometimes just the day-to-day changes aren't that obvious. And then additionally, I'll augment that with monitoring my NT pro BNP, or sometimes people have the BNP, but kind of looking at, you know, health of the RV with those two fairly easy to obtain markers, I think is really valuable. And if I start to see changes in the right side early on, I am quick to add in milrinone to help relax the right side of the heart, relax my PVR as best as I can and monitor on milrinone from there and see if that helps either slow down, stop progression of the RV, or even sometimes reverse it. That is what I'm looking for when I am echoing every day in addition to cannula placement. Fantastic. I love this really patient-focused deep dive and the cardiopulmonary interactions and how things change over those first few days of ECMO. Certainly is a wealth of knowledge for trainees to learn. There's also a pump involved, though, and we haven't talked about the ECMO pump very much or the circuit very much at all. I know there's FiO2, there's sweep, there's you know big tubes and stuff. What circuit variables do we need to be aware of and know about? So as you mentioned, there's the FiO2 and the sweep, and for our VV patients, those are really critical to look at every day, right? So we're going to have an FiO2 and probably some ventilation occurring, or maybe not, on the ventilator side, but we are keeping those very minimal on purpose. So really the lion's share of the work to maintain biochemically stable gas exchange is happening on the circuit side. So every day you're going to want to look at what's my FiO2 set at, what is my sweep set at. And so 
On the circuit side, it may be anywhere from room air up to 100%. 100% really taxes the oxygenator, so most of the time we would want it to be less than that and be able to support the patient with less FiO2 than 100% on the circuit and only use that for kind of times of urgency or emergency. And then as far as the sweep goes, most circuits, the max sweep is 10 so you'd be anywhere from 0.5 up to 10. The higher the sweep, the worse your ventilation defect. And so you're going to want to look at those numbers every day, multiple times a day, and see how they change. Because as your patient wakes up and moves around, those are going to change more frequently. And then the other components of the circuit that are important for us to look at are really the different pressure monitoring. These are called different things on different circuits and in different institutions. So it's really important to actually just understand what the fundamentals of those pressures are doing and not necessarily learn the name, which obviously you wanna learn the name of what your circuit in your institution is doing, but it will change based on what pump you have and what institution you're in. So there's really three big important pressure monitoring. One is called either the inlet pressure, the venous pressure, sometimes people call it a P1, a PN, there's so many different names. And so what that is measuring is the pressure difference between the patient and the pump. And so that is the force that it's taking to pull out your desired ECMO flow from your patient to your pump. And so the size of your tubing, the size of your cannula, and your hydration status of the total circuit are really the biggest drivers of what that pressure is going to be. And so each cannula has a certain amount of pressure drop that it tells you just in the notebook. So that's often where the specialist will get their reference of where to set the pump for that pressure. The second pressure is sometimes called P2, sometimes on the new spectrum pumps, it can be called P out. And so this is the pressure that the system is measuring after your pump before your oxygenator. So it can give you a sense of back resistance from the pump to your patient. So are there any kinks? Are there any areas that are providing increased resistance, such as perhaps your oxygenator or other pieces of your circuit? And then your third pressure, which is after your oxygenator, sometimes called P-ART on a spectrum circuit, called a P3 on some older circuits. The difference between your second pressure and your third pressure, or your P2, your P3, is sometimes called a delta P, sometimes called a transmembrane pressure. And that pressure is telling you about the health of your oxygenator. So what is the resistance to flow in your oxygenator? And so the difference between those two pressures is something that you wanna watch every day when you're on rounds as well. So you may have a starting pressure that gives you a little bit of a baseline for that circuit, depending upon the size of your oxygenator, your blood flow, and a couple of other characteristics, that number is a little bit variable, but you want to watch for is the trend. So if that number starts to rise or increase, then you want to start paying attention to that and potentially bringing in your plasma-free hemoglobin as well to start thinking about how your oxygenator is doing. So if those numbers rise 50, 100, higher than 100, you want to be on alert and be talking to your ECMO specialist about whether or not you might need a new oxygenator or depending upon your system at your institution, you may change out the entire circuit. So those are the three different pressure monitors that you're going to be looking at and that you're going to be troubleshooting throughout the entirety of your patient's run. Nice. Just a couple of clarifying questions. Let's say the patient was dehydrated mm-hmm. or bleeding. What, what, what would change in the pressures? So you would see a more negative inlet pressure or P1 or venous pressure, depending upon what you call it. And so that will become more negative. That will alarm. And so 
If you're giving your patient big slugs of intermittent Lasix doses, you may see that because especially for our patients who are diuretic naive, they may dump two, three, four, 500 cc's. And while that's probably fine when they're not on ECMO, the circuit feels that. And so you may see them have more negative pressures. Same thing as you mentioned with bleeding. So I've had a patient in hemorrhagic shock on pump and the P1s just constantly alarmed. P1s, inlet pressure, venous pressure, Mm -hmm. constantly alarmed until we were able to resuscitate the patient. So those are common reasons that that will alarm. And sometimes our ECMO specialists, maybe several days into the run, they'll start telling me, hey, the delta pressure is increasing. What are they actually saying? So the delta pressure, the transmembrane pressure is also what it's called. And so it's looking at the pressure change across the oxygenator. So in the oxygenator, there's all these filaments and fibers, and we have rapid blood flow going through there. You think about over time, your red blood cells, your white blood cells, maybe medications, maybe other blood products get stuck in the oxygenator. And so they start causing impedance to flow. And so if you have impedance to flow, you have a bigger pressure change across the oxygenator. So what they're telling you is the oxygenator is becoming a bit unhappy. And there may be a reason in the near future or maybe farther future where the oxygenator needs to be changed out. So that's one marker of oxygenator health. Another one is looking at plasma-free hemoglobins and seeing how much really lysis of your hemoglobin you're having. And that could be an indicator of where your oxygenator is at. Taking one transmembrane pressure and one plasma-free hemoglobin in isolation usually isn't very helpful. But looking at them sequentially and serially and seeing are they consistently high or getting higher and then watching your pump PAO2s. And normally if your PO2 that you're, or your FiO2 that you're giving the pump is 50, 60, 70, 80%, you should have a really high PaO2 in the pump. If you see that start to come down, that's another indicator that your oxygenator is starting to fail. So very practical. My last ECMO technician specialist FAQ is... So, hey, I'm having to give back a little bit of CO2. What are they saying then? What's going on there? Yeah, so that means your patient is doing pretty great with their ventilation, right? So they have, if you're having to bleed in or give back CO2, then the patient themselves has enough ventilation that we're not really using the circuit for ventilation. So we don't really need a sweep. We're not sweeping any CO2 out of the patient. And the oxygenator is so efficient that if the patient is contributing a lot of ventilation on their own, then we may actually have to bleed back in some CO2 to keep it normal. Because we don't want to have a CO2 in the teens and 20s because we know that doesn't do great things for our cerebral vasculature. So we want to maintain at least a normal CO2 in the 30s and 40s. And if their lungs are ventilating well, the pump may have to add CO2 back in in order to maintain a normal CO2. Hmm. I do have a question while we're talking about sweep. We know that CO2 affects the cerebral vasculature. As we start initiating sweep in these patients, do you have a mental framework for how slowly you are wanting to drop their CO2 levels? Great question. There's actually a new paper about that in neonates. And so if you have a patient whose CO2 has been sitting 80s, 90s, 100s for a period of hours to longer than hours, then their cerebral vasculature is now accustomed to that. So when I get on pump, I have a clear conversation with my ECMO specialist about what is my current pH and what is my CO2. 
And so what we try to do is really match that fairly closely or within kind of 10 to 20 percent, because it's obviously not obvious up front what type of flow or sweep we're going to get right away when we get on pump. So just a ballpark of, okay, my pH is seven right now. My CO2 is 90. Okay. For the first couple of hours, let's sit at a pH in the 7172 range, and let's sit with a CO2 anywhere between 70 and 90. And then in the next couple hours, we start working our way towards a normal CO2 so that we don't shock the cerebral vasculature. And again, this is really important in neonates because we know that their blood-brain barriers and cerebral vasculature is not as resistant to big changes in blood flow and big changes in our ventilation. So it's really important for those babes, but it's good to have a kind of a standard practice. And And I will say that's my practice, what I just described to you, but mm-hmm. it's really not well defined, I don't think, in many places. And if someone comes to you and says, well, actually it is Dr. Miller, it's right here, I would love to see it. But um, there is definitely kind of more interest in in looking at what the outcomes are for patients who have their pH or their CO2 normalized immediately versus having a slower approach to normalizing those. And we think about reperfusion too, right? So those cells are metabolically starved and have a pH of seven. So again, kind of slowly normalizing those things as long as the patient hemodynamically tolerates it is worth thinking about. Absolutely. In these patients, you've gotten them on, you've stabilized their sweep, you're monitoring your oxygenator. This is a primary lung problem. How do you image the lungs or just sort of go in, make sure that you're able to open up, remove plugs, things like that? That's a really great question. And I think really important to think about in your early days. So we know that their lungs were terrible. We know that they couldn't exchange gas. We know that they needed ECMO. Okay. We may even know why we think that happened, but now how long are we going to be on this run? Are there things we can do to help progress the patient? And to understand that, I think it's really important to do a bronchoscopy and a CT in early days. And so why is that? So one, with a bronch, I think the evaluation of the airway is important. So as you mentioned, is the airway full of secretions and mucus and sloughing and really gross? And actually clearing that out, you start to see some air bronchograms on x-ray. And that's always very exciting for everyone when they look at the x-ray and they're like, there's air bronchograms. This is wonderful. So do you get in there with a bronch and you see that there's lots of debris and mucus to clear out and you can clear that out? That's really helpful. And then, you know, maybe some serial bronchs would be helpful to continue to look and to clear out that the airways in order to ensure that once those lungs and parenchymal space is, is ready to open up and ventilate, that they're able to. So I think that's very valuable in, like I said, the first 24 to 48 hours. I think a CT is helpful because oftentimes these patients are whited out, right? Either before they get on or after they get on. And so it's hard to see, is there something in there that's treatable, that's new? And so what do I mean by that? So is there an abscess? Is there a large effusion? On one occasion, we found gigantic pulmonary artery aneurysms. So what else is going on in there that is potentially going to complicate or contribute to your run, or that could be something that is treatable and helps the patient progress faster? And so both of these things are important early, but I also think they're important to monitor throughout the run, especially if you're on for weeks and weeks and weeks, because you may not see that stuff early, but you may develop those things later where it becomes something that you can clean out their airways, or there is something in the chest that is potentially modifiable. 
I will say you have to be very careful when you think about instrumenting the chest on ECMO and full anticoagulation. However, I do think it's important to know what's in there if it's not just all consolidated lung. So that'll be a contrast CT too, depending on how the patient is doing. Yes. So you're going to have to clamp them off ECMO to do that. So that's a fun thing to teach fellows how to do, I think. That also sounds like a niche protocol. That sounds like difficult, maybe. Difficult for me personally to do independently. You could do it. Just a little little pre-oxygenation, right? Just a little (laughs) pre-oxygenation, clamp it off, and let's see how it goes. Have some epi on board. Right. I tell everyone, our job is not to panic. Of course. Our job is to, as you said, pre-oxygenate on the patient side, on the circuit side, have a really quick radiology technician who knows what they're doing and is ready for you have an ECMO specialist at the pump who is quick and knows what they're doing and will get you on and off pump. The goal is like 30 seconds or less. Wow. And so we always have a physician there, usually the faculty member, but certainly a senior fellow can go and monitor that. And so, yes, you want to be ready for emergencies, but but our goal is to not panic when we see the SATs drop and potentially the heart rate drop because we know we're going to get right back on pump in that short-term window. Such a great little snapshot of the control chaos of pediatric critical care. So as we think about other parts of the medical care of this patient, they're going to need nutrition. They're going to need sedation. What are your general strategies in those first couple of days as you're getting the patient stabilized and maybe as you move toward perhaps a mobility rehab picture down the road? Mm-hmm. For nutrition, um, if there's minimal inotrope needs, there isn't any other reason that you shouldn't feed the patient such as an abdominal process or a GI bleed, then I'll start to at least trophically feed them early, day one maybe. We have the luxury of pulsatile flow on VV, right? So we have normal splanchnic, systolic, and diastolic perfusion. And so I think it's helpful to get the gut going and participating as soon as possible. A you know quick tip about that is if you can get the feeding tube in before you cannulate them, then you don't have to worry about trying to place that wire systemically anticoagulated. Sometimes that doesn't always happen, and that's okay. But if you need to place the tube after you're on pump and, and anticoagulated, then ensuring you have a, a very experienced nurse doing it. Sometimes I'll even do it around you know a, a scheduled platelet transfusion just so they're getting a little bit of extra support there to try to avoid bleeding because GI bleeding on ECMO is not fun. And on a few occasions, it's perhaps been related to feeding tubes either coming in, coming out, or being manipulated. So we want to try to avoid that as best you can. I'll say a fun caveat is if you get to wake your patient up and they're safe to swallow, then maybe they can just eat and drink by mouth later in your run. And just also quick reminder to add a bowel regimen when you start feeding them. Because suppositories and enemas on ECMO are perhaps not your first choice. And a disclaimer is I've never actually done either of those things on ECMO, so... Very fair. How do you start to approach the sedation? And a very specific question is, do you use fentanyl or, in your experience, (laughs) does it bind the oxygenator? Oh, gosh, your controversial question. So sedation and anxiolysis on ECMO can be difficult. And it often is because they're on usually very high sedatives and neuromuscular blockade commonly going into cannulation. And so All of this is complicated by the fact that there is a lot of angst by family. There is concern by bedside staff who are sitting with them about the safety of this cannula. And that is absolutely a very important thing. However, we can safely achieve waking up and having a cannula that stays in place. So the first thing when you think about, can I wake up this patient? Can I wean this patient? Is 
are they on or off their neuromuscular blockade? So you've got to get that off first. And commonly that's one big step to figuring out how to support your patient. And so as they start to move around, sometimes their oxygen demand will go up and that's pretty normal, right? So as you're trying to identify first if they can get off the neuromuscular blockade, you monitor their support and their oxygen requirements coming off. And if they do okay, great. You can move on to the next step of weaning your sedation. If they're having a little bit of trouble, then you need to kind of go back to some basics of ECMO troubleshooting. So is your flow where you want it to be? And if not, are there ways to augment that? Meaning, do they need a little bit more volume? Or are you going to be limited by the size of their cannula? What's their hemoglobin? So super basic, right? Like first year fellowship, what's your oxygen content? And that affects your oxygen delivery. And so that is really important. And so while we often utilize transfusion sparing strategies in our general ICU population, if we're talking about supporting a patient on ECMO, the difference between a hemoglobin of seven and nine may be the difference between you being able to wake your patient up or not. And so I certainly don't need a crit of 40, but the difference between 30 and 35 may be really helpful when you're in this phase of how can I fully support my patient and allow them to wake up. So then we're talking about the sedatives themselves. Age is a big factor. So do you have a two-year-old or do you have a teenager that you can talk to rationally? And so you may need some really basic things like child life or a sitter or their parent to sit with them. And, you know, what are their movies do they like? What are the things they like to play with? What do they like to do? Because trying to keep a two-year-old awake in bed with their cannula is a bit more challenging than a teenager. So anticipating some of those things is really helpful. And then as far as fentanyl versus morphine, I will tell you that in different units in our hospital, people believe different things. I think the difference between fentanyl and morphine is less so with our newer oxygenators and certainly can be overcome with either doses of either one of them or augmentation of other anxiolytics. So I don't think people should get too hung up on which one they're using and, and do I need to switch. Whatever works best for the patient is fine. So if fentanyl or morphine is working for your patient, great. I think it's okay to continue to use it. So once your patient is off neuromuscular blockade and you've been able to start to decrease your drips, how do you decide if your patient is going to be wakeful enough to either extubate or start participating in mobility? And so first thing is you want to get them to spontaneously breathe. And so that's kind of the next step. So get off neuromuscular blockade, wean your sedatives, get to a point where the patient is spontaneously breathing. And if you're having trouble getting to that phase, I always think about, you know, the high complexity of these ECMO patients. But in that space, I think about what are the basics? So is your patient sleeping? Are they delirious? Can we get their sleep-wake cycle a little bit better so they're not so maybe wild at night or, you know, being able to be more participatory during the day. And as I mentioned, are they delirious or are there things we can do to help with that, like weaning their benzos or providing other medications that help with delirium? Are they an older child? And you can tell for sure that they've got an anxiety component. So a lot of our kids these days, right, have some mental health issues coming into the ICU. So those aren't going to go away when they're on ECMO. And certainly some will develop new mental health needs. I think I might, if I was in that situation, need help with anxiety and, and just fear. And so having our psychiatrists and psychologists come see these patients. So you're like, oh, I cannulated ECMO yesterday. Let me call the psychologist. Isn't always people's first thought. But it is extremely important when you're talking about getting a patient to the place where they are able to be awake 
and we can, you know, help them with that component of it. And then as I mentioned before, you know, do you have a child life or somebody else who can come in and help with the patient to do age appropriate activities? When you think about these patients, is there a difference in your mind when you're trying to be a steward of sedation and move towards early mobility between this is likely going to be a short run and this is definitely going to be a long run. I need them to be like a home transplant candidate type of thing. Mm -hmm. I do think there's a difference there. So if I'm in early days and well, if I'm in early days and the lungs are completely consolidated and the airways look pretty clear, but they are just, as I like to say, they're just bricks in there. Then I'm going to work towards kind of the slow process of weaning the sedation and weaning the neuromuscular blockade off and waking them up versus if they are a patient who the lungs don't fully collapse when I put them on low vent settings and I don't need as much FiO2 and I don't need as much sweep, then I think, well, maybe this will be a shorter run on the order of, you know, one to two weeks. Then we may not push them to extubate. We may just because it's comfortable, more comfortable for the patient, but the variety or I guess the approach to, you know, aggressiveness on pushing towards extubation and weeding things off, I think is important for kids who you think are going to be on for a longer period of time because the longer they stay and sit in bed and decondition, the worse off they're going to be in my opinion. That's so so incredibly helpful. This might be a good time to transition our conversation to mobility and rehabilitation for these patients on ECMO. Mm-hmm. So to catch you back on our case, we have over the next several days of your service week, the neonate and the adolescent patient have both done well, and you're interested in working on mobility, rehabilitation, weaning ECMO flows. So let's go ahead and dive in first thing. Why should we care about mobility and rehabilitation with these patients on ECMO? Like, why is it so important? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of studies that suggest mobility improves our outcomes for our ICU patients, both physically and psychologically. Those outcomes include shorter hospital durations in some studies. There are also really good studies that talk about pediatric patients specifically and mobilizing in the ICU and that that is safe. And so I think we all know that on some level, mobility, wakefulness, interaction with families is a good way to avoid global deconditioning. And that's not helpful for our patients in the ICU and thereafter. And so what I mean by that is there was a New England Journal study that actually talked about monitoring patients five years out from their ARDS episode. And while they had pretty good resolution of pulmonary symptoms, they still perceived that they did not have the strength and the endurance that they had before their acute hospitalization. So we can be really good at getting them through their cardiopulmonary problems, but they still have issues just from their ICU stay. And so I think that's why it's important because we want to try to, you know, heal the whole person, not just their lungs, which are obviously a very important part. But if we're going to get them through this life-threatening event with respiratory failure, then being mindful of the rest of them, I think, is valuable to the patient as well. So when does this start and what does mobility and rehab actually look like for the patients in your PICU? Mm-hmm. So my timeline is similar for most patients, meaning that if they're on neuromuscular blockade, this comes off. I start to wean my sedatives early and monitor if I'm able to support them on ECMO because that balance can take several days and for some it can take weeks, honestly. And so making sure that they are comfortable, spontaneously breathing and supported by the pump is a little bit of a dance. And so that can take some time, but that's why I try to start working on it in the first couple of days. And some patients are able to come through that and start doing mobility within the first 48 hours, depending upon why they're on. 
So for neonates, some people think about, well, how is mobility applicable to neonates? So same thing, waking them up and letting them move around is important. If you can get a neonate extubated, they can work on oral stim so they don't lose those um, skills because that's, you know, one of the most important things that babies do is eat. Um, And then we've had parents hold the babies. So get them out of bed and um, have parents hold while on ECMO. So, So right now those are our mobility activities for our neonates, but um, John would tell you that he has visions of hopefully being able to breastfeed on ECMO one day, so that that is one of his goals for his NICU population, and really for our population too in the PICU, because we see older patients that still breastfeed, so you know, that's one of our pie-in-the-sky goals in the near future. That sounds very nice. Yeah. What do you consider the motor milestones to be as you start to liberalize your sedation depth and move towards early mobilization mm-hmm. in the school age adolescent kids? Sure. So the first things I want to see is them just to start to be awake and spontaneously breathe. From there, you know, can they move around in bed, help adjust themselves in bed, start to sit up, first assisted, then unassisted? Getting them the bed bicycles where they can bicycle in bed if they're old enough mm-hmm. to be able to coordinate that. Playing games. So some kids will sit and play Uno. Some will shoot hoops from the bed. And all of that is kind of on the way to regaining trunk support, you know, head control for some kids, but trunk support so that they can pivot, start to dangle on the side of the bed, maybe start to lift some weights and then get out of bed. So we have something called I call it the cardiac chair. I think it has some very fancy names, but that's what I call it. And so they can sit in that chair and we'll slowly start over the course of days to kind of bring them up to stand so that they can wait bare and stand while being supported. And then from there, they can kind of step away from the chair and start to take some steps. Ultimately, you know, they might walk around the room. They might walk around in the hallways. We might take them out in a wheelchair and wheel them around in the hallway so they can kind of get out of their room. And so those are the kind of the physical steps from, you know, just being awake and breathing all the way to, you know, regaining the strength to be able to stand up and walk. And and while we don't walk every VV patient by any stretch of the mind, it's always our goal to work towards it. So we're always working towards that. And so my most recent asthmatic patient I had sitting on the side of the bed by day two. So she was up and awake, extubated on the side of the bed, dangling on day two. So that was really great for her family, too, who was obviously very scared. Yeah, And then uh, some other kind of mental health things that we've done for our kids is, like I mentioned, they can play games. Um, We've had some virtual reality systems that they've been able to use. We brought their pets in. They could do some art projects. So all of that is, I think, very helpful, like I said, for their mental health, their psyche, and also for their parents as well. So, yes. It certainly is obvious to see how this could reduce delirium. If you're putting a patient with familiar faces in front of them, maybe even a pet or a familiar activity. But I'm so fascinated, just thinking about extubating this patient or liberalizing them from the ventilator so they can do these things. Will you give us some comments about how you think about using perhaps an early tracheostomy or even extubating a patient to facilitate this mobility and rehab that you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So first of all, mobility and extubation are a team effort. So obviously the patient is the leader, but the physicians, the ECMO specialists, the bedside nurses, respiratory therapists, physical and occupational therapists, our psychologists, speech therapists, really everyone has to be on board and trained uh, how to get these patients to move around and how to support them while they're extubated. So when I think about an extubated patient, again, that varies by the patient. So 
for an asthmatic or somebody with a large air leak, I try to extubate them immediately because any amount of ventilator support is causing barotrauma. So I will extubate them as soon as possible. For kind of a general ARDS patient, somebody who's been on really high vent settings and neuromuscular blockade and all these things for maybe a little bit before going into cannulation, you know, I'll do that over the course of a couple of days. And to bring in kind of the CT and the bronch data here, if if I'm looking at lungs that are completely consolidated and airways that are pretty clear, I think this might be a longer process. And, you know, I'll absolutely work them towards taking the breather tube out. So each age group is going to tolerate that differently too, right? So talking a two-year-old versus a 12-year-old through an extubation is different. And so we want them to be calm, but not sedated. As I mentioned, we want them to spontaneously breathe and protect their airway when they're extubated. So finding that balance can take a little time. And then I'll usually extubate to either nasal cannula or high flow. And people are like, well, why? Because their lungs aren't doing anything. I understand. But it does sometimes seem to provide a little bit of like psychological support to the patient. Like, okay, I have this thing here. I'm getting a little bit of help. Sometimes it helps the parents. Sometimes it helps even bedside staff who are anxious and they have something they can, you know, provide a little more oxygen for if if the patient is having some troubles at some point. So so again, that's just my own personal practice. And, and oftentimes when they are on for a long period of time, they'll just take it off and just be on nothing. So, so that's usually kind of the steps that I'll take to try to get them to extubation if that seems like the right thing to do for the patient, whether it's physiologically or because it seems like they're going to be on for a long period of time. So it sounds like the two physiologic milestones you're looking for to be like, yes, I'm comfortable extubating this patient with my lung rest atelectasis strategy is one, they're awake enough to sort of clear and manage their own secretions that they won't be like actively aspirating. And two, they have the force to generate some negative interthoracic pressure and expand their lungs a little bit with that, like a few spontaneous breaths, just a, just a little bit of force. Is that? Yep. They may or may not be able to move that much tidal volume, mm. but for them to just trigger. And so that's really what I'm looking for. And they may, if you look at the ventilator, they may move five cc's of tidal volume and that's okay. You mm-hmm. can take their breathing tube out and they may not even have enough force to be able to talk because they don't have enough air movement generated or flow generated to be able to, to talk, but that's okay. I want to be able to see them trigger the breath so that when their alveoli are ready to open up, they can. I'm so interested to know more about the proportion of patients that you extubate on VV. Is this something you try to do with majority of your patients or maybe 10 to 20%? Give us a better idea. Oh gosh, Zach, I didn't look at my numbers before this. Um, Ballpark. I would say for respiratory causes, honestly, we're probably closer to 50%. Okay. Generally wow. speaking. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I think that's really impressive. And our conversation might take a little bit of a, a, a fork in the road up here. So Maybe say you've extubated that patient and they're doing fine on VV. You're thinking, let's start weaning our VV support and see how they do. Would like to know how that breathing tube being out affects your weaning process. And gosh, are you going to reintubate this patient to decannulate them? Mm-hmm. Gosh, so many questions. So many questions. Again, it depends on the patient. So I keep you know using the asthmatic for, for certain examples here, but we decannulate our asthmatics extubated. So our goal is to use percutaneous cannulas so that we don't have to reintubate them because that is the opposite of what they need, right? When we think about asthma physiology mm-hmm. and air trapping. So once they're clear and they you know, do a trial where they're exchanging gas and they don't seem to have any asthmatic features anymore, so they're not wheezing, they're not prolonged, we will just give them a little ketamine and then 
pull that cannula right out and hold pressure and then we're done so we don't have to reintubate them. Other kids, if we feel like we're moving towards a place where their lungs have opened up visually on x-ray or CT and their airways appear clear on bronch, we may reintubate those kids just to get them off circuit, especially kind of the smaller kids, just because they're obviously at higher risk for atelectasis and have lesser ability to clear their airways on their own. So, so we will reintubate those kids in order to get them off, absolutely. And then there's a handful of kids we will trach, depending upon if we're thinking this kid's absolutely going to need support long term and after they get off ECMO, so it'd be helpful for them to be trached now. Some kids, we have wondered if they would be transplant candidates. And so most, we do not do transplants at our center, but most centers want the patient to be trached and rehabbing and in a good nutritional status to consider them a lung transplant candidate. So we will trach those kids if we are concerned that is the path we are going to go down. I'd say those are probably the most two common reasons that we'll trach the kids on ECMO. Um, So in my mind, you're not using tracheostomies for early rehabilitation. You're extubating those patients. And you're using the tracheostomies for the patients that are going to need long-term mechanical ventilation. That's generally what our practice is, but it's absolutely reasonable to consider trachs early. And so if your practice at your institution is lesser so towards extubation, an early trach may be extremely useful to allow the patient to wake up, especially younger patients where people are concerned that the tubes are going to come out, to wake them up and move them around. And, you know, that may even facilitate earlier decannulation because you're able to, you know, quickly just put them back on the vent and see how things go. So I think that is extremely valuable for many patients and in many institutions, that could be an approach that's considered. I will just say that requires, obviously, the multidisciplinary conversation between your, your ENT doctors, your coag doctors. What is your process going to be to do a surgery on ECMO in a systemically anticoagulated patient? So that mm-hmm. is something to think about in advance, as opposed to like, well, we're just going to trick this kid and walk in and and um, you know have complications. So that's so. It must be so impactful for outcomes, having those protocols. Absolutely. I think so. If I'm coming onto service and it's a really long run ECMO patient that I'm taking over for, do you have a way that you would review like, okay, we haven't really CT'd this guy's chest in a while. We haven't bronched in a while. We probably haven't echoed maybe in a few weeks. How would you, how would you clean that up coming on service? So if I come onto service with a patient who is still stuck, so meaning they are needing quite a bit of FiO2 and sweep in the circuit, their x-ray looks pretty whited out still, then I want to go look and see, you know, how are the airways doing? Are they open or do we need help that with some clearance? Are there new things, new findings on the chest CT that would impact how long I think this patient's going to be on? So on occasion, like I've said, we found abscesses, empyemas, aneurysms, or evidence of lung that maybe has become fibrotic. So that is also important when you're thinking about, is this going to be reversible in the end or not? And so while no one likes to think about that part of it, it can also be helpful in these long runs to try to gather that type of information as you're thinking about, will this patient be able to liberate or not? And then echoes, like I said, I really like those at least every week on my long run patients just to monitor how my RV is doing. And and I think it's also nice to know just Where's my cannula sitting right now and in relationship to where I think it is? Yeah. Lots of great considerations thus far about whether the patient's intubated or trached or extubated as you progress through care. I want to just focus back on the pump. What does weaning VV ECMO support look like? And how do you know when this patient's ready to be liberated? Mm-hmm. 
So as I mentioned, every day when you come in and you look at your pump and as you monitor your pump over the course of the day, you're going to be looking at, you know, how much FiO2 and how much sweep am I using? As you start to see those things trend down, you start to wonder if your patient's lungs are contributing more to the gas exchange process. Over that period of time, you may or may not see that the lungs start to clear on x-ray, or you may start to see that first, and then you start to see the FiO2 and the sweep come down. And so those two things are really the biggest ways to monitor if your patient's lungs are starting to participate in gas exchange and if you're starting to get some alveoli that are starting to work. So as we start to see that, we may do something that we call sprinting, and it may be called different things in different places where we might just turn the FiO2 and the sweep down to pretty low settings um, and just see what they do. So do they desaturate immediately? Do they look extremely uncomfortable and dysnic immediately? Or do they kind of hang in there? And that, again, gives you a little bit of an idea how close you might be to doing a trial off of gas flow or, or capping, as sometimes people call that, a capping trial. So not everybody will do these what I call sprinting trials, and people may do them more or less towards you know the latter part of the run. But I think it's interesting just to stand there, have them turn it down, and just watch yourself and see what happens with the patient. And I think that's invaluable when you're trying to decide, you know, are we getting close to a trial off of ECMO or not. And then exactly how do you know when to the patient's appropriate to decannulate? Is this when you just have the circuit FiO2 on 21% and the sweep is essentially nil or, or what? So that's when you know that you're ready to do a capping trial. So that's what we call it in our institution. But generally speaking, that's when we're going to disconnect the gas flow, really. So, so the patient's going to be connected to the circuit. The blood's going to go round and round, but the oxygenator is not going to really be doing anything. So all of the gas exchange, the oxygenation, the ventilation is going to happen on the patient's side. And so you're going to watch and see how well the patient does with that. So obviously you're watching the SATs at the bedside, but monitoring your blood gases and seeing how your ventilation is going. And depending upon the length of the run, you may do that for a shorter or longer periods of time. So if I have a patient who's been on for, you know, a week, 14 days, I'm going to do a shorter trial on the order of hours, maybe four to six. If I have a patient who's been on for a longer period of time, months, two, three, four months, I'm going to do a longer trial and that's going to be on the order of 24 hours at least. And that's because we can see or we have seen them do okay in that first couple of hours and then not be able to keep up in the longer term and then we know they need a little bit more time. Also, with those long runs and those long capping trials, sometimes I'll take a quick peek at their RV and see how it's feeling with just the patient's pulmonary function. And that might give me an idea if I should come off on the milrinone, do I need to be monitoring that RV pretty closely when I come off? So that's kind of another caveat that I'll throw in if we are on a long run for the patient. Once they make it through that capping trial, depending upon how long it is and things look good, then we'll let our surgeons know. And, you know, depending upon if it was a cut down versus a percutaneous, then they'll come decannulate for us. That sounds great. And hopefully percutaneous, hopefully just a little procedural sedation if they're not intubated or just, I guess, general sedation if they do have the breathing tube. Mm-hmm. Yep, so. exactly. So like I said, if they're an extubated asthmatic, then just a little ketamine and pull and hold pressure. And if they're intubated, then obviously we can give them a little bit more. But I try to do that so they continue to spontaneously breathe through it. But it's not mm-hmm. always possible, which is fine. That sounds great. After the decannulation or sort of as you're processing what's happened with the family, how do you think about neurodevelopmental outcomes? Mm-hmm. So neuro complications are one of the things that we do try to give people up front when we're doing consent process, should we have enough time. 
and it's not an eCPR situation, which is not what we're talking about today. But that is one of the major complications of ECMO runs. And so I might tell them up front or I might tell them during the run that, you know, there could be monitoring that we do by EEG. Sometimes we'll do CTs just for surveillance, but sometimes we'll do that if we are concerned that there's a change in the neurostatus. 5% or so of respiratory PEDS runs have intracranial hemorrhages, and that is associated with increased mortality. So that's obviously something that we are concerned about and need to monitor for and watch for. And then long-term or post-run considerations are that we may commonly do an MRI after the run, even if we don't have any specific concerns to evaluate for any injuries. And it's not uncommon that we'll see a little area of ischemia or a little area that we think was injured during the run, but isn't necessarily clinically obvious for the patient. And then when we talk about the long-term data, there's description of seizures, hearing and vision problems, and developmental delays that some of these patients will experience post-run. The percentage of patients that have this varies by study. And while in pediatrics, you know, having a high-powered study is difficult to come by. These studies are good, but their ends are all less than 100. And so it can provide us some insight into what to expect. But I think this patient population deserves comprehensive outpatient kind of standardized follow-up with neurologists and physical therapists, rehab physicians, as well as, you know, their pulmonologists or cardiologists to monitor their acute process. It all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Jenna Miller, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a great conversation covering the basics of EV ECMO, but also sharing with us many of your experiences that I think will make this much more relevant next time we're at the bedside taking care of a patient on VV ECMO. Anything else that you'd like to share with us before you go? I just wanted to point out that, you know, I referenced a lot of material and data from the Red Book and other studies, but I also included many anecdotal and personal institutional practices into this. So, Certainly, I want people to know that doing it a different way or having a different process at a different institution is perfectly valid and welcomed and expected. And all of our experiences together really is what helps us grow as a community. So just wanted to give that little caveat. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Again, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Grit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. It's also worth noting that the views expressed during this episode by me, Zach, and our guests are our own and do not reflect the official position of our institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the production of Pedscrit, you can find us on Venmo and Patreon. We've also had some light merch made in the form of Pedscrit laptop stickers. And if you include a mailing address with any contribution, we would be so excited to send you one. Thank you again for listening. Temp check for the intro. I say, Zach, if I ever need ECMO, fly me to Kansas City. That's right. Yeah. So they can, they can extubate you. Yeah. And then you can be like, we're adults. <laughs>